This is not the media. This is hell. All right, before anything, Richard, what was that music? Who was the artist and what was the song? Uh, Ursula 1000. <laughs> it's this great, great band. They're really cool. Ursula 1000, you, when, uh, when are they from? Where are they from? Anything like that? Man, I'd have to do some research on that one. All right, we'll work on it. I, I don't know. <laughs> we'll put our album. crack research team and all their crack on it uh, right now. Yeah, I have a couple. I think I have a couple of their albums, but they're they've been. Uh, it's probably about ten years ago or so, but uh, but yeah, they're pretty cool. Ursula One Thousand. In case anybody's wondering, Venezuela held elections last weekend. Elections like none other in the country since the last century, starting in the late 1990s with the election of Hugo Chavez and the voters' support of his Bolivarian revolution to bring about democratic reforms and much-needed social services in a nation staggering from economic inequality, Venezuelans had a clear option of voting for the revolution or against the revolution. But over the past few years, let's make that several years, and since the death of Hugo Chavez and the governance of his hand-picked successor, President Nicolas Maduro, things have, let's say, dramatically changed. The right, which could once count on a strong opposition to the revolution, has lost support after years of employing a strategy of abstaining from voting in order to cast the legitimacy of the elections in doubt, then losing those elections and fighting their legitimacy with raw violence in the streets and with obstruction in the National Assembly. Meanwhile, the left sees Maduro drifting from the socialist cause of the Bolivarian Revolution and the Chavistas who have continued with the revolution in their collectives throughout Venezuela. What they see is a Maduro now willing to negotiate with the wealthy who have done everything to derail the revolution, all in an attempt to circumvent the devastating international blockade imposed upon Venezuela, sanctions led by the United States. With the left seeing this as capitulation, this time voters were offered leftist alternatives on the ballot. In a few minutes, we'll talk to writer and editor Federico Fuentes, who posted the VenezuelaAnalysis.com article, Why Venezuela's National Assembly Election Matter, which he posted just prior to last week's vote in Venezuela. So Federico will be giving us the background and then telling us what happened and responding to Western reaction to last weekend's vote. Federico is a writer at Green Left, which you can find out more about at greenleft.org.au. Yes, Federico will be speaking to us live from Sydney, Australia. So he's getting up very early in the morning to do so, and we truly appreciate it. And you can follow Green Left on Twitter at Green Left Online. Federico is also an editor at Lynx Socialism. And you can follow Federico on Twitter at Fred Fuentes GLW. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host Chuck Mertz, producing this morning's show. If it's Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. Richard, how are you doing? Anything new about you? I'm pretty well. I discovered something pretty amazing. Uh, that Daphne might have COVID, and it, actually her uh, Master of Fine Arts in Theater Design is the same exact focus as yours. Well, that's, Lighting. that's a great, Look at that. that's a great uh, thing to know. <laughs> well, what did you find out? Um, you know, Chuck, when you go grocery shopping yes. and you get your cart, yes. and it always has a janky wheel, and you're like, dang, <laughs> why, is, why, why do I have such bad luck? Yes. Chuck, it's not you. It's the carts. They're all bad. You can't help but choose the bad one. So you've done some thorough research on this? <laughs> yes, sir. 
I got to tell you, so I don't have a cell phone. I don't want a cell phone. My girly has a cell phone. It would be great if we had cell phones or walkie-talkies in the store because I can't see very well. And when we get separated, it's like a lost kid. I have to go up to the counter and ask them. Right, exactly. (laughs) And And often, I have often gone up to women and started talking to them thinking they were my partner, and they were not. And I've said some pretty crazy things to women in stores thinking that they were my partner. Well, I guess uh, the, the real the real criteria is did they have better things in their cart than your wife did? <laughs> <laughs> but what, we, what I do, okay, so I hate the shopping cart with the janky wheel, right? Yes. But there is an advantage to us getting a shopping cart with a janky wheel. You know which one it is. Because I can hear it yes. from miles and miles away. It really is kind of helpful at times and also frustrating. It's basically my life. It's frustrating, <laughs> and it sometimes things kind of work out. More importantly, Richard, what is this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? Do you mind if I pose that question to you at the end of the show? You can do that. All right. I could answer it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's tease people. Okay. That way they'll stay tuned in. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth. During this week's moment of truth, Jeff juggles delusions about democracy. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our guest again, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? What was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show, and you can tell because of the music. Prove me wrong. This is hell, and sure, this may be God's Favorite Radio Show. You understand that this is God's Favorite Radio Show. But what you're really curious about is what is the next title on our list of 12 favorite books to be featured on This Is Hell this year in interviews with their authors. Well, the seventh book to make this year's list of our 12 favorites is Tiny You, A Western History of the Anti-Abortion Movement by Jennifer L. Holland. Jennifer argues the war over Roe v. Wade has sadly already been lost. And after interviewing 28 anti-abortion activists for her book, she has a very unique and clear perspective. The anti-abortion movement of the late 20th century completely changed conservatism into a new social conservatism that co-opted liberal ideas like human rights and radical black feminist concepts of the personal as political, combining that with victimization to come up with a cultural arsenal of weaponized politics that would completely reshape not only the Republican Party, but the entire U.S. political scene from right to left. Those opposing abortion were able to get their supporters to see themselves as the fetus, as if any abortion was a personal attack on their own personal health, safety, and welfare. Of course, after the child was born, they lost interest in protecting that child's life with well-funded public education, health care, and social services. But conservatism wasn't interested in the child as a political instrument. 
They just wanted to use the fetus as one. You'll never think about the anti-abortion movement or conservatism the same again after you read Jennifer L. Holland's Tiny You, A Western History of the Anti-Abortion Movement, the seventh book to make our list of 12 favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in interviews with their authors in 2020. Look for the list of all of our books we've chosen so far later today on all our social media I don't know if we've shared them yet, so i got to get that list over to Alex as soon as possible. We got an email at chuck at thisishell.com, and I kind of knew we would because I made a snarky comment about the land of Lincoln's. Illinois' capital, Springfield, and what I was thinking was an homage to past producer and Springfield native Spencer Thunderball Thayer, who has expressed to me his dislike for his hometown. Spencer once told me that as a kid, he got so tired of being taught every year in public school about how great Lincoln was over and over again to the point that he just kind of lost it. I've been to Springfield once. I went to the Lincoln Museum, which was kind of interesting. Their display on how the racist media hated Lincoln was informative. And I can report back to you that, yes, Abraham Lincoln's image is on everything in Springfield. But if I was a kid growing up there, I can see how you might end up being fascinated with John Wilkes Booth. So on yesterday's show, I read listener uh, Martin's answer to this week's question from hell. Again, this week's question from hell, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? And Martin's answer was, this year has been so bad that the only highlights were getting to visit my nieces in Springfield, Illinois, twice and watching an Alice in Chains tribute concert. And that's not a knock on Alice in Chains. I love them dearly. But when a tribute concert is one of your few highlights, you know it's been a crappy 12 months. Hashtag F2020. To which I replied on air, that's what sound, that's, it sounds like the worst part of what was actually happening to Martin. That is going to Springfield, Illinois. Twice. Not in just one year, but, but ever. It's a lousy town. One of the worst cities in America. Well, Martin wrote to us at Chuck at com about my anti-Springfield remarks. Martin says, Dear Chuck, on Tuesday's broadcast, you reacted to my answer to the question from hell by saying, Illinois is one of the worst cities in the world. You know, keep in mind, I don't travel much, so <laughs> it really isn't uh, the criteria there isn't all that great. I'm kind of curious why you feel that way. In the five times I've visited since my nieces and their parents moved there, I found it to be a rather picturesque town with a lot of neat historical landmarks. Unless you're talking about the corruption pervading state government, maybe? I'm not sure. Anyway, all the best to you and the This Is Hell crew. Signed, Martin in Chicago. Martin, the old state capitol building is beautiful, made of this local limestone that gives it this ancient look, like this rusticated look. And like I said, the Lincoln Museum has its high points, I guess. The reason we went down was to take a tour of that racist uh, Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, Dana Thomas house, which is stunning. Although it is weird that it is an older home that Wright did not originally build, but dramatically added onto and changed. On the second floor, there was one room the Thomases did not want him to change from its original Victorian look, so Wright demurred, but he refused to ever walk through that room, ever enter it, ever exit, despite it connecting one side of the home with the other, meaning he would have to take this meandering detour through the home to get to the other side. That's what an elitist prick Frank Lloyd Wright was, aside from being an outright racist. 
but man, I really do like his architecture. We even had a, a fairly good meal in what we were told was the best restaurant in downtown Springfield, but there's nothing quite like understanding a central Illinois city than going downtown on a Saturday and seeing them completely abandoned, empty, while the nearby strips of malls and chain stores are packed with people. I definitely got a lonely, empty, abandoned feel to Springfield, like the feeling you get when you are somewhere you are certain white flight has occurred. So, Martin, I defer to my friend Spencer Thunderball Thayer when it comes to Springfield. That said, it didn't make me... It did, I mean, sorry, it did make me rethink the worst cities I've ever visited. And it's still in my top five. But have you ever been to Rockfield, Rockford, sorry, Rockford, Illinois? That town is horrible. It makes Springfield look like a paradise. Remember, you can send me your complaints about my comments on Rockford or Springfield by emailing me at chuck at com. We also got an email from Neil, who has a return guest suggestion, and writes, Hey, Chuck, my introduction to This Is Hell was in June of this year when I listened to your interview with Ajay Singh Chowdhury on right-wing climate denial, or right-wing climate realism. I've been fortunate to take to have taken many of Ajay's and his colleagues' classes at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, a nonprofit teaching and research institute offering critical community-based education in the humanities and social sciences. In the latest post section of The Baffler on December 7th, Ajay wrote a piece on how the underlying mood of the American left can explain the euphoric dancing in the streets after Biden's win. He examines forced optimism, tortured stupidity, exhaustive realism, and other mindsets and their political implications. Perhaps this writing is worth another visit from Ajay. Anyway, really appreciate you and your team's dedication and hard work. Its importance cannot be overstated. Be well, Neil. Thanks, Neil. Those descriptors you cite for Ajay's work on Biden supporters celebrating the victory and not merely Trump's defeat, forced optimism, tortured stupidity, exhaustive realism, does at least sound to me... It's, they seem to describe the reaction of Biden fans very well. I do not know anyone optimistic about Biden as president. Relieved, sure, but optimistic, no. Did you see the military contractor who wants as Secretary of Defense? Anyone who thinks that watered-down promise on student debt of Biden's only giving $10,000 of relief, which helps out those who are not struggling with student uh, debt the most, it's stupid to think that helps people like, well, me, who $10,000 makes absolutely no difference in their student debt because my student debt is so massive. And I cannot think of a better term to describe the Democratic Party's politics at this moment than exhaustive realism. So thanks, Neil, and I will definitely be checking out past guest Ajay Singh Chowdhury's recent writing in the latest post section of The Baffler. And I hope you do, too. In fact, here's a quote from the work to get you interested in Ajay's writing. The center, in its inability to govern conditions which require its own undoing, leaves the unvarnished reality, no matter how distorted and paranoiac projection to the neo-fascists, its primary political concern is the suppression of a possible radical realism to its left. The left is held, at least for the moment, in blackmail. The only effective disposition American optimism seems to countenance is apocalyptic fatalism. So check out the article. It's called Left Wing Hypomania Against the Power of Positive Thinking by Ajay Singh Chowdhury, which you can find at thebaffler.com. 
Coming up on This Is Hell, Venezuelans went to the voting booth in historic elections last weekend, and we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? What was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? And more importantly, we'll be learning... What was the worst thing that happened to Richard in 2020? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood, live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is hell. Venezuela held elections last weekend that were unlike any they have held this century. For the first time, it appeared in the run-up to the vote that major splinters were happening not only within support for President Nicolas Maduro, but also for the right-wing opposition, whose backers are seemingly growing weary of the right-wing strategies of abstaining from elections, losing, and then fighting their legitimacy in the streets. Here to help us understand, understand why last weekend's elections were so significant, what led up to them, and and what happened and what it all means for the future of Venezuela, as well as U.S.-Venezuela relations. Writer and editor Federico Fuentes posted the Venezuela analysis article, Why Venezuela's National Assembly Elections Matter, just prior to last weekend's vote in Venezuela. Federico is a writer at Green Left, which you can find out more about at greenleft.org.au and follow on Twitter at Green Left Online. Welcome to This Is Hell, Federico, and I cannot thank you enough for getting up so early in the morning in Sydney, Australia. Hello, and thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. So, before I ask you any questions, what time is it? How brutal was it for you to get up this early? Oh, it's about 3.18 in the morning uh, the, tomorrow for you, uh, so uh, Thursday morning. Well, uh, my apologies, but I really appreciate you being on the show with us this, uh, this week because uh, you know, we, when we covered Brazil's municipal elections 10 days ago on the Monday following the vote, we went with the assumption, and we're going to do the same thing here, that listeners were either unaware there were elections or that they did not know the events that led up to the vote that had a significant impact on voters' decision-making process. While we do stream and podcasts and all that all around the world, our audience is basically American audience, and the American audience has so little knowledge of what is happening in the world outside of our borders and outside of the trivial different debates that we are having when it comes to what's happening with the election. In your article, Why Venezuela's National Assembly Elections Matter, posted just prior to last weekend's election in Venezuela, you write Venezuelans are set to vote in elections like no other in the country's recent history. So let's just start there. Why was last weekend's vote, even before knowing the outcome, like no other in the country's recent history? What made it so different, even prior to one vote being cast? I think what made these elections uh, quite unique, uh, albeit uh, compared to any election, essentially since 1998, 1998 being the year that Hugo Chavez, uh, former Venezuelan president, won the presidential elections uh, for the first time with a with a large majority, is that since 1998, the, the Venezuelan political landscape has been highly polarised between uh, two, two political poles. Uh, the first one have been those parties and organisations that supported Hugo Chavez and his uh, self-proclaimed Bolivarian revolution, a, a political process that was aimed at uh, empowering the poor, at reducing poverty, uh, and that during Chavez's time in power, uh, had achieved uh, much, uh, you know, much in that sense. Had seen dramatic reductions in poverty. Had seen a large expansion in people's participation, whether that be through the creation of cooperatives, whether that be the creation of 
community councils to uh, bring about grassroots democracy at, at the local level. We saw a polarization on the one hand between the parties that supported that political process and those generally more right-wing, uh, generally more traditional uh, established parties who opposed it. And every election was by and large polarized between those two poles. Um, even though the, on the ballot paper, the different parties uh, would, would, would exist, uh, usually they would form two large alliances heading into elections, whether they were for the presidency, whether they were for the National Assembly, whether they were for governorships or, or municipal councils. This time around, though, it was quite different, and it largely reflects the changing political landscape in Venezuela. So there's two, two big differences. The first is, unlike almost all of those other elections, or in fact, like all of those other elections, we saw a, a fragmentation uh, on both sides of of the political divide. On the side of the opposition, uh, we saw firstly a fragmentation or a division between uh, a majority who chose to abstain in these elections uh, and a large minority who chose to participate. Then even within that large minority that chose to participate, we also saw a further fragmentation of at least two large um, blocks that went in, in alliances uh, but divided amongst themselves and some smaller parties also participating in search of representation in the National Assembly. So already there on, on the one hand we've got an important fracture occurring amongst opposition forces who by and large since 1998 have been united whether their strategy has been to electorally defeat uh, uh, Chavez and, and later on his uh, successor Nicolas Maduro or whether that's been uh, to abstain or boycott from elections. We also saw a similar fragmentation, although not quite on that same level, but for the first time, a, a what you could call a, a dissident left or, or a critical left or an opposition left um, a candidature that will run candidates against um, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, the governing party, and the alliance that, that had formed around that, that governing party. So we saw I think that was the first big difference, that, that political fragmentation that, that's beginning to occur. But I think it also more broadly reflects, and this is the second important aspect, I think, of, of this year's uh, elections, which will, which was more marked this time around than, than in any time in, in, in the 20 years, and certainly at least in the last few years, is the real process of disengagement that's occurring with a large bulk of of the Venezuelan population from the political process, a real sense of that neither of these two poles or, or any fragment of the, these different two poles truly represent a way out of the deep crisis that, that Venezuelan society finds themselves in. And this was by and large reflected in, in the large abstention that we saw in, in these elections. Um, this was a, an, an extension, abstention rate of about 70%. Uh, but one that can't be put down to simply support for that opposition section that chose to boycott the elections. Uh, in fact, you know, it's very clear that whilst there was a, an important number of opposition supporters who chose to boycott, the vast bulk of the people who did not participate in, in these electoral process did so because they generally feel that neither, neither, neither of the two political polls that have dominated Venezuelan politics for essentially the last 20 odd years uh, really represent them or represent any kind of way forward for, for Venezuela. So in that sense, it, 
it opens up in, in, in some ways a new political terrain coming out of, of this National Assembly, which all sides of politics uh, will have to attempt to grapple with uh, if, they, if they're able to continue to, to move forward and, and to build on whatever result they were able to obtain in, in these elections held just last Sunday. So has there been an overall loss of faith in democracy in Venezuela. When we were talking to Brian Muir of Telesur English uh, 10 days ago, when we were talking to him about what happened in the Brazilian elections, he talks, he mentioned to us about how Jair Bolsonaro is doing everything he can to raise doubts about the democratic process within Brazil. Here in the United States, we have a right-wing leader in Donald Trump who's trying to do everything he can to bring about doubts when it comes to the election. Have Venezuelans to any extent lost faith in democracy or is it just losing faith in their political leadership? I think you could argue there's a there's an aspect of both. Um, certainly if we want to talk about a loss of faith in the political system as such, that, that would certainly hold true for a section of the opposition uh, who have by and large argued that the electoral system as it exists today in Venezuela is 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 an undemocratic system, one one that is essentially under the control of the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, and so therefore it's an electoral system that you know cannot facilitate uh, free and fair elections. I think that that um, that criticism of the electoral system is is is, is extremely harsh but has elements of truth to it, uh, elements of aspects of what we're seeing in, in particularly, say, for instance, in these National Assembly elections, of where the electoral courts have intervened into political parties in order to favour those uh, wings of the political parties, for instance, on the, on the side of the opposition that were willing to participate. So where political parties were divided as to whether to abstain or participate, the electoral courts would intervene to hand over the, the, the party name or the party registration to those wings to, that were able, who wanted to participate. We saw a similar thing occur on the side of those parties who were split over whether to support the United Socialist Party of Venezuela or to support this new um, new alliance that was formed, the, uh, the Popular Revolutionary Alternative. Uh, again, the electoral courts would intervene on the side of that wing of the party that preferred to run in alliance with, with, with the governing party. So. There has been a, certainly an erosion there uh, of belief in the, the electoral system, uh, one that some of the actions of the electoral system itself have, have helped to, to, to conjure up. Uh, but I think it's also that the, the second part is also extremely important, and that is that the real sense that there is no no project, no way forward being, being proposed by either side of politics. Um, in order to get get Venezuela out of the very deep crisis that it's in, so when when it comes to the opposition, there's a real sense that essentially now, particularly since 2015, when the opposition won the national assembly, different fragments of the opposition have been promising that you know Maduro would be gone within months. That was the the famous saying when the opposition assumed the national assembly. They said, you know, within six months, we would have a different Venezuela without Maduro in the presidency. He's still there. And of course, this has led to tremendous disillusionment amongst opposition supporters on the side of the, the supporters of the government or sort of supporters of the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. There's this sense that no matter how many times they go out to vote for the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, the economic situation gets gets worse and worse. Now, of course, 
many understand, uh, many see the role that the, the, the sanctions regime that's been imposed on Venezuela plays in this. So for many of them, it's there's a certain belief that perhaps it's just little to nothing that the government can do except to resist, to, to try as best as possible to survive and hope for better days when, when the sanctions uh, can be lifted, when a, when a political alliance internationally can be built to, to weaken um, that, that sanction regime. But so there's a sense among supporters of, of, of either side of politics that neither of the political leaderships are really offering a way forward. And in, in the midst of all this, you've just seen a, a growing section of the population that just really today doesn't identify with either of these two poles. And I think it would be unfair to say that they, they, they're kind of like a, a third pole or, or they're a, a neither side of politics pole, um, because the reality shows that in many cases, uh, most of these people who today identify with neither side still overwhelmingly identify with the legacy of the Chavez government. So still view those years as being extremely popular years that they they look for look look upon fondly. So I think what we really have is that uh, Chavismo uh, that is a, a, as a viewed as a political movement that had supported um, the, the process of the election of Chavez and the Bolivarian Revolution continues to have a, a, the largest political uh, followers, the largest section of the, of the society that follows that, but today do not see uh, the Maduro government, what, what is the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, necessarily rep representing that legacy. So that's that's what we have in, in, in Venezuela today, this, this changing landscape where neither feel that either political uh, leadership offers any kind of way forward. And with a, a growing sense of you know what what can elections really change, whether that be because the electoral system is perhaps not fair, or whether that be because the sanctions regime means that no matter who's who's in, you know, no matter what policies or what what ideas the the, the ruling uh, party may have, they're unable to really be able to change the economic situation that has become so dire for Venezuelans today. And because of this, there now are leftist alternative parties in Venezuela. You write perhaps more significantly dissident pro-revolution parties have for the first time organized a nationwide challenge to the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, which was launched by Chavez and is now headed by President Nicolas Maduro. What differentiates those alternative parties from Maduro and Chavez? Are they continuing the Bolivarian revolution? You were just saying that that seems that they are. Are they continuing the Bolivarian revolution in a way that the Maduro administration is not pursuing? Are they trying to fulfill the unfulfilled promises of Hugo Chavez? Yeah, the, the, this is the, the, the basic premise for, for how the, the, the popular revolutionary alternative that the APR has come about. It's essentially a coming together of political parties, uh, social movements, community organisations, individual activists who feel that not necessarily that Nicolas Maduro as an individual, um, but certainly that the government uh, as a whole has uh, shifted away from the trajectory that, that Chavez had, had initiated. And so there's a real sense of what, what do we as left parties, social movements, community activists do in order to get get the process back on track, and so that's where they've come from. Now, within within the um, the APR, there are, there are different views. So some will be a lot more critical of, of Nicolas Maduro or the government than than others, but all all really much see the, the need, um, see the importance 
of actually bringing, beginning to articulate, beginning to cohere all of these fragmented left movements uh, that exist in Venezuela that have, uh, you know, found it very difficult in the, in the economic context that, that ordinary people face in Venezuela, where it's become easier to seek out individual solutions to overcoming the crisis, um, whether that be everything from migrating to leave the country uh, through to having to rely on remittances from family members overseas, through to seeking out uh, livelihoods in the informal uh, sector of, of the economy. Uh, it, you know, so what this has led to is a general uh, uh, general decline in the level of popular organisations. Here what we have is a group of you know, uh, organisations that, that have said, look, we, we need to reverse this trend. If, we, if there's going to be any way forward, if there's going to be any way to get the process back on track, it's going to be going back to that spirit of Hugo Chavez, that spirit that relied on popular participation, on grassroots democracy, and that's going to be the way that, that we're going to be able to move forward. So in that sense, it's, it's a really important initiative. Uh, it's less important in, in the electoral sense. Um, this was its first time um, running uh, in the elections. It was always going to be difficult. Uh, for it to 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 get a, a good result for for many different reasons, um, and in the end, you know, it, it sort of averaged about three percent across the country, which is a obviously numerically very small, but I think its significance lies in that it's the first time that we really see a, a platform of these different sort of popular social left organisations getting together to try to articulate a a, a project. Uh, a, a, a program or, or a list of, of sort of demands that can actually begin to tackle the, the, the problems that are occurring in Venezuela. And I think that's going to be the real key to, to its success or failure, how it's able to not simply become uh, just one more critical voice against the government, uh, albeit this time from the left as opposed to from the right, but actually an articulation, a, a coming together of all of these different organisations that can truly put forward uh, real concrete solutions to, to, to the problems that people are facing. Because as I said, that the, the elections have revealed there's a, there's a very large gap between those who support Chavismo and his political project and those who support Maduro today. Um, that the, the platform, the, the, the APR, you know, is a long way away from being able to fill that. Um, but that, I think, is ultimately tame to be able to represent those who do no longer feel represented by, by the political process and through that hope to engage in a, a broader societal discussion about getting Venezuela to, to continue down the track that it had un, under Chavez, a, 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 that one that was focused on uh, not just eradicating poverty uh, through nice policies uh, such as introduction of free education, free healthcare, its expansions of, of access to basic services, but also that was very much focused on empowering those sectors of society as the only true way to, to get rid of poverty. I got to ask you about Juan Guaido because he is so misunderstood here in the United States and I think throughout the West. We are speaking with writer and editor Federico Fuentes, who posted the VenezuelaAnalysis.com article, Why Venezuela's National Assembly's 
uh, National Assembly elections matter just prior to last weekend's vote in Venezuela. Federico is also an editor at Links Socialism, and you can follow Federico on Twitter at Fred Fuentes GLW. You write after Maduro's 2018 re-election, the National Assembly went as far as declaring the result illegitimate and proclaimed the previously little-known deputy and newly elected National Assembly president and opposition hardliner Juan Guaido as, quote-unquote, interim president of the country. Internationally, the strategy has been relatively successful with the United States, Australia, and a number of European and Latin American countries refusing to recognize Maduro's government. But within Venezuela, it has caused much consternation within the opposition, given it has failed to remove Maduro and has led to a steady decline in support base and presence in the various levels of government. In Western media accounts of Guaido being named by the opposition as president of Venezuela, one line of analysis keeps appearing over and over again. It keeps repeating over and over again. And that is, despite international support of Juan Guaido and an economy that has been devastated, Venezuelans continue to support Maduro within Venezuela. How much does international support provide legitimization of Guaido's claim to be president? How much did international support for Guaido affect domestic support for Guaido? I, I think the the international recognition was certainly crucial in the, the first few months of Guaido's project to essentially try to set up a parallel government. In fact, it's almost there is little doubt um, that it was only because of the international support and, in fact, the, the very clear uh, signals that were given by and large from from the United States, but also from Spain, um, that the opposition launched this this sort of project to to sort of essentially self-proclaim itself or self-proclaim Guaido as as the new president, the interim president of Venezuela, and set up this this parallel government. Um, prior to that announcement, there was a deep discussion within the opposition as to whether to do this or not. Was this the, the best option or not? And it's essentially been, you know, revealed that there were phone calls given uh, directly to, you know, directly to Guaido from Washington, uh, from Madrid, saying, look, if you go ahead with this, we will recognise you as as a legitimate president of, of Venezuela. Uh, had those phone calls not come in, I think it's quite likely that the opposition would not have embarked on, on this project because it was a very dangerous project, of course, to, to, to declare yourself as a, as a government not, not in exile, but a government inside the country uh, is, is a very dangerous move, particularly if you truly believe you are living in an authoritarian dictatorship. There are not many authoritarian dictatorships that allow a person to run around the country proclaiming themselves to actually be the, the genuine leader of that country. In most other places, uh, those people are forced into exile or, or put in prison. Yet Juan Guaido can, continues to do that uh, in, in Venezuela. The problem with that initiative is that it really means you you have to at some point overthrow the existing government or be exposed for being the, the sham that it was and these elections are, are now play a really important role um, in further fragmenting that opposition that had even in some cases not supported this strategy that Guaido was going to launch um, the strategy as I said backed by important forces internationally um, but that had come behind it, sensing that, well, the, the best chance for the opposition to win is to unite at least behind at least one strategy rather than to fragment. Um, what we have now is that 
Juan Guaido is desperately trying to convince the opposition, uh, both inside of Venezuela, but will now have to convince those outside of Venezuela who have been supporting him to date, that his National Assembly, whose constitutional term has expired, um, who are not in any way suggesting that they will go to new elections to elect their uh, assembly, should be the one that is continued to be uh, accepted as a legitimate National Assembly internationally. I think that's going to be extremely hard for many governments to be able to justify. I mean, how, how long can you continue to basically support a defunct uh, 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 parliament uh, that has clearly been replaced by a new one in terms of new elections, whatever you may say about those elections, um, and that is refusing itself to actually renovate its, its democratic mandate by, by going to the people. And on, on top of that, you have internally divisions within the opposition about the different parties who are basically saying, look, Juan Guaido's time as the president of the National Assembly is over. Um, the, the National Assembly had largely operated, having been under opposition control, as a, a sort of pact within the opposition parties to rotate that position. So we're already starting to see divisions amongst the opposition about whether Juan Guaido should even continue to be the president of the National Assembly or the one that is no longer no longer active. So the international support was extremely important, not just in its backing, but in the fact that the opposition launched um, this, this, this objective to, to set up a parallel government. And I think it's going to be crucial in what happens next, because I think what we will see, uh, certainly we could see from some of the initial statements, is uh, for, particularly from the United States, from European Union countries, is a sense of, uh, or is a statements of rejecting the most recent elections in, in Venezuela, so rejecting the newly elected National Assembly. That was something they had already announced before, so that that's not particularly new. That that's, that was not something that anyone was, was not expecting would occur, and that's not a change in any way in the political landscape. But what will, I think, start to change is the inability to continue with the facade of being able to somehow believe that Juan Guaido, by being the president of the now defunct National Assembly, somehow can still continue to constitutionally claim a mandate as being the, the interim president now for uh, three, two, two, three years running uh, in, in Venezuela. And what we'll start to see is that once again, uh, and at the international supporters of the opposition trying to figure out well, how, what, what's the next step, what's the new strategy, one that is complicated by the fact that the opposition is today more, more divided than it ever has been, and arguably with a, with a smaller support base than it has had for, for quite a long time. A support base that you know, must be argued, on the one hand, it itself has whittled down because of its uh, failed strategy of trying to violently overthrow the government, uh, a, a strategy... Uh, a, a strategy that has seen its, its support decline from its height in 2015 when they won the majority of the National Assembly uh, and won not just a majority of seats but a majority of votes uh, to, to a situation today where it finds itself in a, in a very difficult uh, a position in trying to be able to mobilise support behind any kind of strategy, whether that be elections or whether that be street protests. I think one that... the the government has contributed to helping in that process of fragmentation by seeking out those sectors that are willing to engage with a negotiation and dialogue with the government, willing to open up spaces for them in, in, the, in the political sphere, uh, as I said, in some ways even facilitating that through the intervention of the courts into political parties to allow them 
to participate in in these elections where parties had divided over over participation. So this this will now be an important part. What what will what will happen next? Who who will the international community in inverted commas by international community generally the media who is really referring here to largely the United States and European Union? But what what approach will they take now? Uh, will be will of course have an, an impact as well in in this shifting political landscape within Venezuela. One thing that caused the fragmentation within the left, as you wrote about back in October, was this new anti-blockade law. You write that, like many of those supporting the alternative left party that has emerged, um, the United Left General Coordinator and Popular Revolutionary Alternative, that's the name of the party, candidate Felix Velasquez, is very critical of the government's current orientation, which he believes is no longer socialism, but rather to foster the rise of a new wealthy class. Velasquez, you quote him saying, the government has allied itself with the right with the aim of benefiting wealthy economic sectors. Now, in an article, like I was saying in October, that you wrote at Green Left on the anti blockade law. You reported how revolutionary activist and sociologist Reynaldo Itariza said the anti-blockade law should be viewed as a part of a broader shift in the government's economic orientation, which dates back to the Bolivarian economic agenda launched in 2016. Back then, amid a severe drop in oil revenue and defeat in the December 2015 parliamentary elections, the government found itself at a crossroads through the Bolivarian economic agenda initiative. Itariza explained the government opted for the path of, quote, building alliances with certain sectors of the capitalist class, this was without doubt a point of inflection in the Bolivarian process, not necessarily because the government decided to negotiate with this section of the capitalist class, something it had done previously, including under Chavez. Instead, the key difference was it was now negotiating from a position of weakness. It just makes me wonder if Venezuelans have to choose between the Bolivarian revolution and sanctions. Are Venezuelans so desperate for the sanctions to end that they're willing to negotiate with the capitalist class that has supported the violence and the delegitimization of democracy in Venezuela? Are they that desperate for sanctions to end that they would give up on the revolution? I, I think that the first point is that all of the polls indicate, and, and the numbers just continue to get higher and higher uh, in the sense of Venezuelans, firstly, oppose the sanctions and secondly see the sanctions as a primary problem facing the economy today. Now, of course, it's, it is important to note it, it's not the, the whole reason that can explain the economic situation in, in Venezuela. Um, there's the sanctions and that is extremely important in understanding what's going on. There's also the, the simultaneous collapse in oil prices and oil production in Venezuela which has had a big impact in the economy, given that it's by far the most important sector of the economy, and particularly when it comes to, to, to exports. But I think a third aspect has also been um, the inability of the Maduro government to really come up with policies to try to tackle this. So we've seen a lot of essentially improvisation uh, for, for a number of years now um, that has led the sort of government into this kind of cul-de-sac where today there's this real sense of, look, there's basically very little that can be done um, to get us out of the economic situation unless we are able to somehow circumvent these economic sanctions. And I think there is an element of truth to that. Uh, the question is, though, wh what is that very little, at least, that can be done? And how can we 
how or how can Venezuela get to a situation of moving from the, the current uh, balance of forces, which don't enable it to break out of the economic sanctions regime and get into a position where it can. And I think ultimately because the government has found itself in a cul-de-sac, there's a real sense of well, all, all we can really do is try to create the conditions where as favourable as possible to foreign private investment or local private investment that can at least in a, at a minimal level begin to uh, stimulate the economy once again. And that's what's really been motivating the anti-blockade law. And, you know, the anti-blockade law is essentially trying to uh, provide uh, companies, particularly the foreign companies, uh, some kind of protection against the economic sanctions regime. Of course, that, it's a very tricky thing, and that's why there's a lot of elements within the law that have been heavily criticised, everything from the kind of secrecy that surrounds the, the deals that would be signed between the Venezuelan state and any company, whether that be state-owned or, or privately owned uh, with Venezuela, um, the, the talk about the, uh, uh, the possibilities of privatising companies that, are, that have been previously nationalised by the, by, the, by the Chavez government. All of these have, have raised certain elements of, of criticism. But I think there's another important criticism to look at, um, and, and, and this is where I think a lot of the, the sort of the, the left criticism is coming from. Uh, not all of it, as I said, there are different viewpoints amongst the left towards, towards the Maduro government and the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. But I think there's an important section um, that recognise that in the current context, there absolutely is some need to sit down with with opposition forces, including those that for many years have been basically trying to violently overthrow the government. Anything that could somehow bring Venezuela back to the to a situation where politics largely is played out through a democratic framework rather than through uh, violence, you know, would be a step forward for, for Venezuela and would no doubt contribute to alleviating the economic sanctions. Internationally, that would provide, I think, an avenue where pressure would, would be applied to start on those on the, those countries, particularly the United States, to start lifting the sanctions on the Venezuelan economy and allow the Venezuelan economy to breathe. But there's also a sense that in order to do that successfully, you have to at the same time be strengthening your own social base. And that requires, as well as providing these initiatives that occur in, in, in the private sector, um, some of which can, you know, are supported, some of which are, are, are more criticised, is policies aimed at promoting the, the, the popular economy, the local economy, the, the farmer economy, um, the, the economy that's emerged of trade between different community councils and communes as expressions of popular self-organisation, uh, where communities in the countryside in the city are exchanging produce in order to try to grapple with and deal with um, the economic crisis, those collective solutions, not the individual solutions, but collective solutions that Venezuelans are, are, coming, uh, are coming for. Now, in some cases, that's going to come into contradiction with incentives that the government is trying to do in order to promote private investment. And we've seen that, for instance, through land occupations that some farmers have, have done and which the opposition have used to say, well, look, this is why food production is, isn't occurring as much as it used to, because you're essentially allowing small producers to take over unused land. What the, the left is arguing is, well, that, that land's not being used. We're precisely in this situation because 
the opposition have been sabotaging the economy in order to try to bring down the government. And many on the left feel that the government is, is bending over, is, 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 is trying as hard as possible to facilitate that private sector and in some cases at the expense of, of those those popular sectors. So the, this this is, I think, the, the, the real the real challenge, or this is where that, that big debate is coming about. Um, yes, there are some who rule out any kind of uh, kind of negotiations with the private sector, but I think most, even even of the, the critical sections of, of, of Chavismo, accept that there is a need to do that today, given given the current context. But if we accept that we're doing that from a situation of weakness, how do we strengthen that? And and I think that also comes back to where, where we sort of started talking about, it, which is the analysis of the elections. So on the one hand, the, the government's analysis of the elections is this is a this is a big victory. The United Socialist Party of Venezuela obtained roughly 67, 68% of the vote. We'll now have a, a super majority of more two thirds of the National Assembly. This reflects that the people support the, 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 the process against the opposition. Others are saying, well, look, yes, that is important that we won the elections. Of course, what matters in elections are, are votes. What matters in elections are the seats in parliament. But also it, what matters if we are to build, if we're trying to build a progressive alternative uh, to the to capitalist society, if we're trying to build a protagonistic and participatory democracy is people's involvement. And when you have such high levels of abstention, such high levels of disillusionment um, with politics, this becomes incredibly difficult to do and only only means that we continue to negotiate from a position of, of weakness. So I think this this is really the issue that the, the sanctions absolutely are seen as, as a critical point and, 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 and are a big part of why the opposition has split. I mean, the large bulk of those opposition parties that participated in the elections have largely split because they they see the the hard line opposition too aligned with uh, not just uh, foreign powers, foreign governments, but more importantly, see themselves as you know see this hard line opposition literally travelling around the world, calling on more governments to apply sanctions, which they can see at home are hurting not the government but ordinary Venezuelan people, and it's why the opposition continues to lose support because they see the opposition as, as a force that. Is not interested in helping Venezuelan people try to get out of this crisis, but rather is only interested in, in, in obtaining as much power and economic wealth as, as they can, protecting as much of their um, economic wealth as they can. So that's why the opposition have also split on this question of the sanctions. Here's how the vote was reported on, and it, granted this is in an opinion piece, in the Washington Post by Francisco Toro, who the Post describes as a Venezuelan political commentator and a chief content officer of the very pro-business organization, the Group of 50. Toro wrote on Sunday, many Venezuelans turned up at polling places, had their names checked against voter rolls, and were then ushered to a private area where they could choose among candidates and parties on a ballot. Nicolas Maduro's impoverished regime devoted considerable resources to giving the exercise the look and feel of a legislative election. Few were fooled. The elaborate sham with the look and feel of an election was no such thing. Dictatorships have held this kind of faux election for decades. On June 12, 1966, nearly every Soviet voter chose candidates aligned with the Communist Party. Every five years, the same charade was repeated with the victims of the Soviet regime being allowed to choose from slates of one. In Cuba, the same cruel tradition brings people out on the streets every five years. No one mistakes these pantomimes for real elections. 
So, in your opinion, to what extent was the election stolen last weekend? Well, look, you know, it, it's funny because when it comes to the opposition in, in Venezuela, the opposition supporters sort of essentially had the same story for the last 20 years, that every election has been stolen, except, of course, for the, the couple that they've won. It's a very strange electoral system that only seems to steal certain elections, um, um, but not all of them. Uh, I think the reality is, is that, as I mentioned before, there are certainly aspects of the electoral process that can be criticised, in particular the way that you could say that the, elect the electoral courts and the other court systems in Venezuela have intervened in a politicised manner uh, into some of the political parties to ensure that those wings that were willing to participate in the elections from the opposition did so, um, and those that were uh, from the, 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 the sections of the sort of pro-revolution parties uh, that decided to support the United Socialist Party of Venezuela were, were intervened as well to allow the tickets to, to be given to those sections of the party that support it. So there's no doubt that there are elements that, that can be, that can be criticised. Um, the biggest problem is is that the opposition refused to accept the reality that the Venezuelan electoral system in general is one that has one of the most sort of uh, uh, abilities to actually check through the votes and ensure that the, the integrity of the vote is, is complete. But more importantly, that the elections in Venezuela, if you really look at the figures, do broadly reflect the reality of Venezuela. And this is what the opposition have refused to accept. And that is, if we look at the, the turnout, 30% turnout, two-thirds to the United Socialist Party of Venezuela and its allied parties. So we're large, largely looking at 20% of the population. And that's what polls have shown for the last three, four, five years in Venezuela, that while Maduro uh, and the, is extremely unpopular, uh, so in terms of if you ask in the polls who, who do you dislike, there is a large level of reaction towards Maduro. There continues to be an important, solid, 20, 25%, maybe even a bit more um, of the Venezuelan society who identify with the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. There's an even bigger section of society that identify with the legacy of that party, but don't feel that today Maduro or the current leadership of that party or the government re reflects that, that broader legacy, that, 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 that legacy of, of the Chavez government. That section of society represents a majority. Now, unless you're understand that unless you accept that, unless you start from that premise rather than just simply see anyone who disagrees with you as a dupe uh, who's just been fooled into going into an, an electoral process um, that is com a complete sham, unless you actually take as your starting point that the reality is that any election in Venezuela today, if the opposition are going to win, requires at the very minimum winning a section of that population that today no longer supports Maduro, but still sees positive aspects of the Chavez uh, period in government. You're not having an attempt to try to win, win that section of the population over. Then you, you'll, you, you won't win, whether that be electorally, because you certainly won't be able to obtain electoral majority. And you're almost certainly not going to be able to defeat the government violently because those sections are not going to support such an outcome, uh, su such a strategy. But the opposition continues to, to, to refuse to accept that reality and they believe that they were born to rule for, for 40 years. They essentially ruled Venezuela uninterruptedly. There was no, no real electoral challenge that, that occurred when the traditional parties 
um, ruled ruled Venezuela, alternating in, in power, and 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 they just all of a sudden were surprised when that large section of Venezuelan society that did not participate in elections, um, that did not, that were totally disillusioned, totally disengaged from the electoral process, saw within Chavez and what Chavez was was proposing for the first time themselves reflected in the political landscape and came behind that movement, not just electorally, but began to organize themselves. And that 20 years on, continue to see themselves as a, as a part of society, as a, as a legitimate part of politics in Venezuela, and refuse to um, leave that, that political table, to refuse to just hand it all back to the, to the traditional elites. They want to continue to participate in politics. They want to continue to see their interests represented Unless the opposition is willing to try to attempt to uh, win that section over, they're going to find it extremely difficult um, uh, to 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 get rid of of the Maduro government. And that's a, a reality that the opposition have to accept. But unfortunately, it's comments comments like, like the ones that you've read out that reflect why there continues to be such a large reaction uh, to to sections of the opposition who who refuse to accept that and instead see anyone who may have possibly in any way have seen something positive of the last 20 years as, as just simply being uh, paid dupes uh, of, of the government as opposed to actually ordinary people who have their interests um, that they want to see reflected, represented and defended uh, by, by politicians regardless of their, of their political stripes. Or that somehow that is comparable to 1960s Soviet Union. And I'm going to ask you one more question and it's going to be quoting somebody else probably just as horrible as Francisco Toro, because I have one last question for you. It's the question from hell. We do this with each and every one of our guests, I promise, Federico. It's the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. We have been speaking with writer and editor Federico Fuentes, who posted the VenezuelaAnalysis.com article, Why Venezuela's National Assembly's Elections Matter, just prior to last weekend's vote in Venezuela. Federico is a writer at Green Left, which you can find out more about at greenleft.org.au and follow on Twitter at GreenLeftOnline. You can also, uh, or, sorry, Federico is also an editor at Links Social- Socialism, and you can follow Federico on Twitter at Fred Fuentes GLW. The AP, there's an AP story about the election, and it ends with this frightening information and quote, Eric Farnsworth, vice president of the Washington-based Council of the Americas and America's Society Think Tank, said it could take months before Biden's administration, Joe Biden's presidential administration, establishes its policy toward Venezuela. Farnsworth said that with Guaido's congressional term ending, along with legal immunity granted sitting congressman, he is exposed to the possibility of being arrested by Maduro's government. The AP then quotes Farnsworth saying... You have a country in Venezuela that's embarked on the full path of dictatorship. The international community now has to decide whether it wants to live with that or restore the democratic path for Venezuela. Those options seem to be narrowing. Does Maduro winning the election mean the likelihood, the possibility of military intervention, of a war, of, uh, not an invasion by the West, France, Britain, and Germany, as well as the U.S., have condemn the election. The whole EU condemned the election. Does Maduro winning mean the likelihood of a military intervention, a war in Venezuela has greatly increased? I, 
obviously it's very difficult to 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 give a definitive answer but i i would say that my sense is the appetite for a military intervention today in venezuela is not particularly high and i would say if anything what what the lesson that should come out of these electoral results is that an actual democratic challenge can be launched um, that could see an opposition electorally defeat Maduro. Now, we could say, or, the, or the, the opponents would say, well, this is just not possible. You just can't have free and fair elections in Venezuela. The reality is that in the lead up to the National Assembly elections that occurred just last Sunday, the Venezuelan government expressly and openly said they were willing to have observers from the European Union, for example, come to observe those elections. Now, the European Union refused on the basis that they needed more time to be able to organise their observers. That was their choice. They had plenty of ample time. It's, there's no, there was no explanation given to why they needed more time to be able to do that. But under Venezuela's constitution, the National Assembly elections were due to be held, and so the elections went, went ahead. What we are now approaching in Venezuela, and what will, I imagine will be a debate within the opposition as to what they do, is the ability that the Venezuelan constitution allows, um, quite strangely for an authoritarian dictatorship, something that in very few other countries and almost no other countries allow, is the ability to initiate a recall referendum against Maduro. If the opposition were smart, I think what they would do is begin to launch now a campaign within Venezuela and internationally to try to bring the government to the table to say, well, we're going to create the situation to ensure that a recall referendum can occur and uh, ensure that the, the conditions are there, uh, including with international observers, uh, for this election to, 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 to uh, occur in a, as free and fair as a possible manner uh, to see whether the majority of Venezuelans want to see Maduro continue to remain in power. I think that should be their approach. I think, unfortunately, it's unlikely to be that because, as I said, the problem for large parts of the Venezuelan opposition is that rather than accepting the reality of what Venezuela is today, they prefer to impose their own reality. This has led them down constant cul-de-sacs, led them to constant defeat, where they fought their result in the 2015 National Assembly elections, represented the beginning of the end for the Maduro government, and yet five years on, the Maduro government is still there where they've constantly launched calls for military coups, for insurrections on the streets that have seen very, very small turnouts occur. It's a fundamental uh, lack of faith or belief in, in the Venezuelan people, rather than just doing the very difficult and hard work of actually weaning people over to their political project. They prefer to pursue other means. So I think it's, don't think that there seems to be a huge appetite for military intervention, although it's something that can never be ruled out. It's certainly something that previously um, has, has been put on the table by, by different governments. But I think what the elections show uh, in terms of uh, the, the, the government's willingness to allow international observers to come in, participate through the electoral, electoral process, what they show in terms of the results themselves, the level of disengagement that exists or disillusionment that exists amongst Venezuelan voters show that there should be an important path for a democratic outcome to this. What it requires now 
is for the opposition to come to, to its senses on, on that regards. And what we'll see now is playing out on the international sphere is a debate amongst the different different governments as to which which wing of the opposition or how they're going to help to get the, the, the opposition behind a, a unified strategy. And I think this will be key to see what it is that the, the, the incoming Biden administration does because I mean, Trump has been very clear what his policy was towards Venezuela, which was to support the ultra-right. In fact, not, not, not I mean, it's probably unkind to just say support the ultra-right, to essentially dictate the line that the ultra-right took uh, in, in Venezuela. And we saw the European Union occasionally try to strike out a different path. For instance, uh, you know, initially, you know, wanting to become observers at, for these national semi-elections, but very quickly backtracking when they came under pressure from the United States. Now, Biden has said very little about Venezuela, except for criticising Trump for being unsuccessful in, in, in his policy towards Venezuela. What road will he take? This will be very important. This will absolutely have an impact on, on Venezuela, will have an impact on what other governments are, around the world do. But um, I think a lot of it is going to play out what does the Biden administration do. A lot of it is going to be impacted by what happens in this sort of reconfiguration taking place in the political landscape in Venezuela. Because if we can see uh, at, at, at the very minimum the, at, an increase in the dialogue between the, the two poles uh, in, in Venezuela, it's certainly going to create more political breathing space, not economic breathing space because the sanctions are going to remain there, but political breathing space to be able to convince um, other countries, look, the, the, the ability exists here for a democratic outcome. It has to be the Venezuelan people who decide. These decisions can't be made by a small elite and it certainly cannot be made by foreign governments. It has to be the Venezuelan people who decide in free and fair elections. And it should be always considered the fact that free and fair elections don't just mean the right for people to be able to vote in those elections. Absolutely, that is a fundamental tenet of a free and fair election. But how free and fair an election can there be today in Venezuela when a gun is being held to that country's head in the form of the economic sanctions and where the people are being told, depending on how you vote in these elections, will determine what occurs next with your economy and whether these sanctions are lifted or not. So if the international community, so-called international community, is genuinely interested in free and fair elections, I think the first thing they could start to do in order to make the electoral uh, battleground or the playground uh, free and fair would be to start lifting the economic sanctions currently stra strangling the country. Federico, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I find that uh, that idea of the right imposing their own reality uh, really fascinating because that seems to be the right wing's project globally, wherever it happens to be right now. Uh, and Federico, I, I want to thank you for getting up so early in the morning in Sydney, Australia. We have been speaking with writer and editor Federico Fuentes, who posted the VenezuelaAnalysis.com article, Why Venezuela's National Assembly Elections Matter, just prior to last weekend's election. Federico is a writer at Green Left. And you can find out more about Green Left by going to their website, greenleft.org.au, and follow them on Twitter at Green Left Online. And make sure you follow Federico on Twitter at Fred Fuentes GLW. Thank you so much for being on our show. And we are going to put you in our list for context to uh, discuss Venezuela in the future because this has been a fascinating conversation and your writing is exceptional. So thank you so much for being on our show today. 
No, fantastic. Thank you as well. It's certainly a, a show that I've been able to listen to on the, on the podcast and very much appreciated as well. So it's a great, great opportunity to be able to finally be on here and, and speak with you. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Now we know we have two listeners. Thank you so much for being on our show. <laughs> Take care, Federico. Bye. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism. Since 1996, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Richard Norwood. Richard, this week's question from Hell is, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? What was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? First, Richard, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? Your mom. Man, she can land those punches. They are brutal. (laughs) Thank you, sir. So how are listeners answering this week's question for In reality, after reading them, I I have nothing in comparison. (laughs) I know. They're awful, aren't they? (laughs) Yesterday's uh, person who was the target of a murder attempt, I I think that person's walking away with the win here. But go ahead. Tell us how listeners are answering this week's question from Al. Again, what was the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? All right. Chris L. says, I broke my femur, ankle, ankle, and shoulder. Sounds like a motorcycle accident. It does sound like a motorcycle Um, accident. Then got COVID pretty bad, but recovered. A 40-foot tree then fell on our house during an unseasonable ice storm, and my kid's bike got stolen. (laughs) Jesus. Uh, keep going. Yes. Joe M. says, I was scorned by God. <laughs> Shaking my head, he says. <laughs> Scott S. says, it would all have to be related to my job caring for adults with develop- developmental disabilities. From stress crying every night at the beginning of the pandemic due to being overworked even more than use than usual for a poverty for poverty wages and thinking I would be I would unknowingly kill all the people I take care of by going to work mm. to believing I caught it all at work and thinking I'd kill my roommate who isn't in the best of health Jesus. <laughs> to learning that this pandemic killed three-fourths of the people at one of my boss's other group homes and caused one of the employees there to miscarry so, wow, wow! All of a sudden, being a target of a murder doesn't sound so bad. Yes. All right. Any uh, more? Yes. Krimsky Crackers says, when detailing to the doctor my penis problem, <laughs> you don't want to know the tr- trust me. The receptionist interrupted to tell us that the telephone was not properly pl- replaced, so that the conversation was being relayed to all of the reception area <laughs> and the waiting patients. <laughs> Have you seen the ad on TV yet for the drug to fix bent penis? <laughs> no. It is hilarious because having a bent penis is not a problem. That's not an issue. That is not an I know people who have bent penises and the people they have had sex with said it's the best sex they've ever had. So I have n- you got to see this ad. Look up the bent penis <laughs> drug ad. It's ridiculous. Uh, so then uh, Krimsky continues, much hilarity ensued except for me. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Joe G says, I learned I was to be jobless when my old university eliminated my 2021 visiting professor position in a group email. Then they asked me to teach the classes at an adjunct salary with no benefits. But spoiler alert, I think he has a good answer for next week. No, because next week's answer is going to be what is the best thing that happened to you in 2020. So start thinking about that right now. And I think I know who that Joe G is, and I think he is related to WNUR. (laughs) 
Pammy Hammy says, whoever put this post together not using the phrase be honest, because Alex chose a picture of a person covered in honeybees. <laughs> yes. But Pammy, I have to say, I think the your phrase, the phrase should be be oh, honeyest. Oh, dude. Dude, <laughs> dude. All right. <laughs> Any more? Yeah, Mark. S says, I have lost a half dozen of my lifelong friends from the high school and college days this year. Jesus. Only one death announcement said that the cause was from COVID-19. Another announcement said that my friend had died a senior, at a senior care facility where the front page headline was that the coronavirus had affected numerous patients there. And he goes on with a list of other friends that he's lost. Jesus. Who's that again? Mark. Uh, Mark S. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Warren L. says, Florida's unemployment system. To hell with it. They can keep the $100 a week. <laughs> that's the worst thing that happened to you in 2020? Getting right. $100 a yeah, week. Yeah, I guess that's that great. Laura E. says, my mom died from COVID-19. Yeah, that sucked. Yeah. Uh, sorry for your loss. Egan S. says, definitely that time when the cops maced me, assaulted me with a baton, and then stole my bike. Chicago's finest. Yes, they are Chicago's finest, and they got all those bikes back, unbelievably, through the National Lawyers Guild. Quite an amazing achievement by the protesters. Jeremiah P. says, even with all the death and chaos I've experienced this year, it's still got to be a toss-up between getting addicted to crack and falling in love. (laughs) It's the same thing. Kevin W. says, a bit early to be making commitments, isn't it? 2020 moves fast and isn't over. All right, last one. Kevin B. says, I had the final nail in the coffin of postmodernism, but then had it stolen by the corporate machine, and now I have to wait another four years to try again. (laughs) So the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell Wins, your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want, you can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to you for all of your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can tweet it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show, tomorrow's show, when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. This week, Jeff juggles delusions about democracy. So, Richard, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Yes, on Thursday, journalist Amanda Spearber, Sperber on her NBC News piece, Uber Alice made big promises <laughs> in Kenya. Drivers say it ruined their lives. And Jeff Torchin juggles delusions about democracy. And in a moment of truth, that's what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. Just ignore that last line. I forgot to get rid of their name. I don't know what that's saying. By the way, why didn't Uber call themselves Uber Alice? That would have been a far better name and more representative of what they are. So I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing has been Richard Norwood. Don't forget, if you want to show your support, go to thisishell.com and click on support. Or subscribe to our weekly Friday 10 a.m. Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks to Richard for producing. Thanks to our guest, Federico. Thanks to Alex for booking today's guest. Daphne, get well soon with my most sincere apologies. Yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I'm also a very proud race and gender traitor. This is 
hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more Interview Hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>